This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We were talking last time about that passage where in the Psalms, David, in a rather uh, sorrowful way even, speaks of the fact that the sufferings of the righteous are more than the sufferings of the wicked. And I did not have an opportunity last week to explain that in detail. Many, the psalmist says, as you recall, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And he means by that not only that the afflictions of the righteous are more in number than the afflictions of the wicked, but that the sufferings of the righteous are of greater intensity than the sufferings of the wicked. They're worse. They create greater sorrow. They create greater distress. The affliction which God's people suffer in the world is more intense than anything which the world knows. That's also the idea in that psalm. And I think perhaps we ought to make an effort to understand that just a little bit better. There are many reasons for that, many reasons why the sufferings of the righteous are more intense and more bitter taken in themselves than the sufferings of the wicked. I don't mean to say, and I don't want to be interpreted as saying, that the sufferings of the righteous are more bitter in the light of all that the righteous possess. I didn't say that very well. Let me try to put that a little differently. I don't mean to say that if you take into account the fact that the righteous have a great comfort in the midst of all the afflictions and sorrows of life that is so magnificent that the sorrows of the righteous are drowned in the magnitude of their blessedness, that even then their sufferings are more intense. I don't mean to say that. I mean to say sufferings taken in themselves apart from the fact that the Lord gives us in the scriptures the key not only to understand sufferings, but the truths that we need to know that change our sufferings into happiness. If you take sufferings apart from that, then the sufferings of the people of God are more intense, more bitter than anything the world can possibly know. Let me illustrate that. I had a man who came to me once 
who had lost, this is many, many years ago, who had lost the son in an automobile accident. Grown son. And as is so often the case in tragedies of this sort, this particular man of God who was finding difficulty putting this tragedy into a biblical perspective began to doubt his salvation. That's always, it seems, the case. If we can't, in our own minds and in our own hearts, in times of affliction, get matters straight in the light of the Word of God, it always has spiritual consequences. We always begin to question whether we're saved. That invariably happens. And that was the question which this man put to me. Do you think I'm really a child of God? Do you think so? I want your opinion about that. And I said, why? And he said, because the scriptures tell us that we must be contented in the way in which the Lord leads us. And even in great sorrow, we must have comfort. He says, I can't find that. I can't find peace. I can't find comfort in this. And I don't know why, except for the fact that I'm probably not a child of God, because if I was, then I certainly would be comforted. So the fact that I'm not can only be explained by my failure to realize that I'm a child of God, if I am at all. Those are hard questions, those are hard problems. I said to him, the simple fact of the matter is, and you must understand that, that the sorrow of the people of God when they lose a loved one is greater and more intense than anything the world can know. Your sorrow is greater than the sorrow in the world. He looked rather surprised. Nevertheless, that's true. When you think about it, when you think about the fact that the sufferings of the people of God are greater, more intense, and more bitter than the world, it's because of, and that's a kind of a paradox, a kind of an irony, it's because of the fact that they are a child of God. When they weigh their sufferings over against the sufferings of the world and say, my sufferings are greater, my, my grief is greater, then that must not lead to the conclusion, well, I must not be a child of God, then that must lead to this conclusion. That's proof that I am a child of God. That sounds paradoxical, does it not? But that's true. 
Think about that for a moment. When a worldly man loses his wife, he may feel a sorrow, although many of them do not. But that sorrow which a worldly man experiences when he loses his wife cannot begin to compare with the sorrow of a godly man who loses his wife because a godly man loses a gift that God has given him, a wife who is a help for him in his calling in the midst of the church. She's gone. And not only that, but God has taken from him a dear sister in the family of God, not only a wife, but a sister. And that's a great and grievous loss. I remember when my wife and I were married many years ago at the reception, Reverend Opoff closed the reception with prayer, and he made this remark in the prayer. We thank thee, Lord, that these two who have been united in marriage tonight are not only husband and wife, but brother and sister. And that struck me so forcibly that I didn't hear another word of the prayer. I was thinking about that. And it was the first time I had heard that. And I thought, that's true. That's true. To lose a wife, therefore, is a greater loss than anything the world can possibly know. Now, the paradox of it is, of course, that that very reason for the intensity of our grief is also the reason for our comfort. Because the relationship of husband and wife, as precious as it is, as much a gift of God as it is, is only a temporal thing that lasts throughout the history of the world, but that my wife is my sister in Christ. While increasing the intensity of my sorrow, is also my comfort because she has gone to join the family of God made perfect and someday I'm going to be there too in the family of God where she won't be my wife anymore but where she will still be my sister and will be that forever and ever world without end. That's the paradox of it. When a mother and father lose a child in that child's infancy or as a young child, that's a great tragedy and a great sorrow, of course. But the sorrow of a covenant father and a covenant mother in the loss of a child is far greater than anything the world can know. They lose a child, that's tragic. They may grieve over that. 
But when a child of God, when Christian parents lose a child, they lose a covenant child, a special gift of God, by whose presence in the family, their family, their covenant family has been enriched and who occupies a place in that family which no one else can possibly occupy after that child is gone, not even new babies in the home. The loss is greater. But the very fact that that child is a covenant child, which is the reason why their grief is more intense than the wicked know, is also their comfort because they have no reason to doubt that their children whom the Lord is pleased to take from them are also heirs of his covenant and their child will be in glory. Not as their child anymore, the earthly relationships pass away, but they're temporary and not the important ones. But the real reason for the depth of the sorrow of the people of God is at the same time the ground of their hope. And that is true of all the relationships of life in which believers stand to each other. If a husband loses his wife not through death but because she commits adultery and leaves him, in the world, that happens all the time. Get a divorce, find somebody else, marry again. But when a husband loses a wife through divorce, he loses one whom he thought was a sister in Christ and who turns out not to be such a sister. And that hurts to the depths of one's soul and he can't marry again and must bear the cross of loneliness the rest of his life here upon earth. That's a greater cross than the world in all of its sin ever, ever knows. Same thing is true in the church. In the love that binds the family of God together in the church on earth. The loss of a fellow saint is a grievous and bitter loss, especially if such a one occupied a role of influence and leadership in the church. So great is the loss that we ask ourselves the question, how is he ever going to be replaced? What are we ever going to do without him? not realizing, of course, that the welfare and existence of the church is not dependent upon men. But there's a hole in the congregation, a hole. But what was it that makes the sorrow so great? Was not it the fact that he was a faithful servant of God in the office of elder or deacon, where he served the Lord to the welfare of the church and meant so much to the people of God in his work in the church of Jesus Christ. But that's a relationship which death cannot destroy, a relationship that will endure forever. So that which is the cause of our deepest grief 
a grief far greater than the world can never know, is at the same time, paradoxically, the comfort of the blessedness that the church possesses in the relationships of life which God has created by his grace. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth from them all. And that remarkable deliverance which the Lord works in our lives is a deliverance which does not shove suffering aside and consider suffering of no count. It's not the kind of deliverance that tells you, as so many do in the church today, ignore it, keep a stiff upper lip, have courage in the midst of suffering. But that deliverance from all the sufferings and trials of life is exactly through the instrumentality of the afflictions and sufferings which the people of God endure. It's the wonder of God's gracious deliverance of his people from the sufferings of this present time. So that's one thing. Another thing, another important part of this whole question, that is of this question of why the psalmist can sing with such great pathos, many are the afflictions of the righteous, is this. And this is probably the most significant of all, although I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it tonight because we'll have to come back to it in connection with our discussion on the Psalms. The scriptures point us to the fact that the greatest instrument of the suffering of the people of God, the greatest reason for their sorrow, is sin. Sin. Just plain sin. And that means many things. That means, for example, that if we live a life of overindulgence in alcoholic beverages. We suffer the consequences of sin. And although we may be a child of God, we bear those consequences the rest of our life here upon earth. As one man wrote in Time magazine many years ago, an unbeliever who understood this better than some people of God, I was a drunk. I was taught not to drink. I haven't had a drink of liquor in 30 years, but I'm still a drunk. And I'll never be anything else but a drunk. How true. The man who lives a life of immorality and suffers from social diseases is a man who will have to bear the consequences of those diseases the rest of his life. Now if he's in the world and doesn't care all that much about sin and defies God by laughing in God's face when God sends these judgments upon the sinner, that's one thing. But a child of God 
who repents and is brought to the cross and has found forgiveness and the power, the healing power of the cross, nevertheless suffers the rest of his life, the consequences of his sin. I just had a letter the other day from a man overseas. He wanted to know what to do because a friend of his had had an affair with another woman and that woman had become pregnant and now they didn't know what to do. And the question that the man put to me was this. Under these dreadful circumstances, is an abortion okay? Can the woman have an abortion so that she can return to her husband and he to his wife? What's the answer to that question? You all know the answer. No, a thousand times no. What do you want to do? You want to pile the sin of murder on top of the sin of adultery? Yes, but a simple abortion will solve all the problems. Will they? I don't know, but even if they would, Abortion is not an option. The man must confess to his church and to his wife his sin. And whatever devastation that may wreck in his family, he has to do it. And he must make his confession to God. And so must the woman. And the child has to be born. And the man has to support that child because it's his. And he's going to live with the consequences of that sin the rest of his life. And if he is truly a child of God, what a terrible, dreadful, unhappy life such a man and such a woman will live. Sin, sin has its consequences. It's not the only thing. There's this matter of conscience. God has given to every man a conscience. The wicked have a conscience too. The conscience in a man is so powerful that the conscience has the ability to drive a person out of his mind, and I mean that literally. I was in Pine Rest many years ago visiting someone was having problems. And this person had a roommate, young girl, 21, 22, lying on a bed on the other side of the room, to whom I paid not one whit of attention. I was reading the scriptures and praying and speaking with this parishioner. When I was finished, that woman lying there on the bed called me over and said to me, I heard you say that there is forgiveness for sin in the cross of Jesus Christ. She said, that's probably true for most people, but not for me. And I said, why not? And she responded and said, my sins are too great, they cannot be forgiven in the cross of Christ. And I said to her, you must not say that. The cross of Christ is 
sufficient to cover the greatest sins and the most sins of all those for whom Christ died. No sin is too great. Oh, no, she said, I'll tell you. And all of a sudden, it was like a dam broke. And she told me the story of her life up until the age of about 21 or 22. I don't remember the details. I didn't listen very closely, but it was one of the foulest, dirtiest, most corrupt recitation of one's life that one can imagine. I tried to stop her. I didn't want to hear it, but I couldn't. And when she was all finished, she said to me, see, I told you. And she turned her face to the wall, and that was the end of it. No matter what I said after that, I could get no more response. A week later, I was there again, and that woman was out of the room. I said to this parishioner, where's your roommate? Oh, she's upstairs receiving treatments. So I thought I would inquire. So I went upstairs and I talked to the nurse at the desk and I said, is is so-and-so here? Yes, she's in the room over there. Well, what's the matter? Well, she's receiving a sodium pentothal treatment. You don't know what that is. Sodium pentothal is what is sometimes called truth serum. The doctors were trying to get her to talk. And I said, why in the world are they doing that? Well, says the nurse, she won't talk. She won't tell anybody anything. And I said to the nurse in some amazement, she told me the whole story of her life and I couldn't shut her up. Try as I would. Oh, how in the world did you ever get her to do that? I said, I didn't do a thing. I, I tried to stop her. But I was reading the word of God and praying with a lady whom I was visiting. Oh, said the nurse, that's impossible. Conscience, conscience. The girl had a conscience that made it impossible for her to see the cross. And whatever happened to her, I don't know. Never saw her again. But I thought to myself, the sufferings of conscience are bitter. For the world, that's true, but the world does everything in its power to silence the voice of their conscience. But for the child of God, a bad conscience is a terrifying thing. Because a conscience is God's testimony of his fierce judgment against our sin. You did wrong. I'm angry. And when God says that, that's terrible. We may try to 
silence the voice of our conscience. Doesn't David speak of that in Psalm 32? When he was finally brought to repentance of his sin of adultery and murder, while I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent with grief. Thy hand was heavy on me, my soul found no relief. Child of God can't bear that. That should be obvious. If a child in the home loves his parents, there's one thing he can't stand, and that's to have his parents angry with him so that his parents will not have anything to do with him. They won't talk with him. They send him to his room. He can't stand that. He can take a licking, no matter how hard, but he can't stand to have his parents angry with him. Not if he loves them. If he doesn't love them, of course, as you find in the world, there's no problem. But I know when I was a child, I would rather have had ten lickings than to be summoned into my father's study and have to walk that distance from the doorway to his desk and stand there and hear him tell me, how displeased he was and how angry and how I had forfeited his love by my sin. It's the most dreadful thing in the world. And so it is for the Christian in his relationship to God. The suffering of an evil conscience is far more intense and far more bitter for the child of God than it is for any wicked person. But again, at the same time, Hebrews speaks of a conscience washed in the blood of Christ. And it is exactly the horror of a bad conscience that drives us to the cross to seek forgiveness and pardon. While I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent with grief. Thy hand was heavy on me, my soul found no relief. But when I owed my trespass, my sins hid not from thee. And thou forgave, forgavest transgression, and didst pardon me. That's, again, the way to victory, the way to... Salvation. Nevertheless, there's more to it than that. And this is the part I'm not going to talk about tonight at any great length. But the reason why the people of God suffer more intensely, more deeply, more bitterly than the ungodly is because Every moment of their day, they are engaged in this awful battle against sin that is present with them and fights against them wherever they go and whatever they try to do. And that battle, which the wicked do not know, 
and of which they have not an inkling, is when all is said and done, and we reach the bottom line, the greatest suffering for the child of God. I have sinned a thousand times. I have brought my sins to God. In his grace he has forgiven me. And now I commit the same sins over again. Not once, not twice, but a hundred times. And though he is merciful beyond description and always forgives when I come to him. Why, why this awful battle constantly? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. When in our sin we fall and succumb to sin, you all know what I mean. God seems so far away that he is impossible of being reached. The Psalms are full of that, and that's why I want to talk about this a little more in connection with our study of the Psalms. We cry to God, we're sorry for our sins, but that nagging sense of our failure to endure in the battle that awful awareness of being overcome with sin again and again and again, and that distance that now is there between me and my God, so great a distance that I cannot transverse it, is what, after all, suffering is all about. And the opposite is true. I may possess houses and lands, I may possess cars, I may enjoy all the pleasures of the world, but if I don't know the forgiveness of sins, there is nothing but misery in the depths of my soul. But on the contrary, if I know in my heart that my sins are forgiven, Whatever else may be the circumstances of my life, no matter how weary may be the way and no matter how great the load which I am called to bear, my sins are forgiven. God loves me. I know his favor and all's well. Life can be endured. The cross can be borne. Persecution cannot rob me of my faith. My sins are forgiven. My sins. That's what comes. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But don't forget, the Lord delivers from them all. So those are some of the things I could mention more yet. John says in his epistle, My greatest joy is that my children walk in the truth. And certainly that means my greatest sorrow is that my children forsake the truth. God's people know what that means. God has not promised to save all our children. 
He has promised to establish his covenant with us and our seed. But he has not promised to save everyone. That's a great sorrow. From which also the Lord delivers us and must deliver us or life would become unbearable. Any questions on what I have said or any comments, if you'd like to comment? That's what, in my opinion, the text means in Psalm 43. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Anyone have any questions? Yes, Henry. I use the two terms interchangeably as synonyms, yes. Want to say more about that? Do you want to say more about that? Henry asked the question, by the way. Sorry, committee. Henry wondered, as I understand it, whether grief and sorrow were the same thing. That was your question, wasn't it? And I used them as having the same meaning. Would you like to say more about that? Okay. Anyone else? There is one suffering of which Scripture speaks a great deal, and that is the suffering of persecution. We don't want to deal with that at length tonight. We simply do not have the time. I do want to say a few words about it, however, because uh, when we get to the divine purpose of suffering, persecution, and our understanding of it plays a major role. So let me be as brief as I possibly can. There are two words for suffering in the New Testament. One is the Greek word phlipsis, and the other is the Greek word Dioko. Thlipsis is frequently translated in the New Testament, probably most of the time, as tribulation. And this word is translated persecution. In those two words, the scriptures sum up what the real idea of persecution is. This word, thlipsis, conjures up in one's mind the idea of being put into a very small room where there is nothing but four walls and a ceiling and a floor and having the ceiling and the four walls and the floor constantly coming closer and closer together until the one who is in the room is squeezed. And the picture that scripture means to convey to us by that term is this, that fundamentally, because the child of God is 
really not a part of this world, a citizen of it, but a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and a pilgrim and stranger in the world, he's gradually more and more squeezed out. There's no room for him in the world. And so he's squeezed out of it. That's the idea of this term. This term refers, and that's the meaning really of this word to dioko, this word defines persecution as pursuit and has in it the connotation of the wicked constantly hounding the people of God to observe what they're doing and trap them in what they do and condemn them for what they do and unjustly kill them because of it. It's like the Pharisees in Jesus' day who followed Jesus, dogging his footsteps, listening to every word he said, in order that they could find something in his ministry on the basis of which they could condemn him. It's like the idea which Jesus conveys in Matthew 24 when he tells us that the day is coming when the abomination of desolation will be set up in the holy place. And when the child of God must uh, confront that horror, he must flee. But he must expect in his flight that he will be pursued. He will be chased. He will be hounded. He will be driven from one end of the earth to the other until finally he's caught and executed because the wicked cannot tolerate his presence among them and so pursues him in all his life. Those two words, say scripture, really give us an idea of what persecution is. Second point I want to make is that the scriptures emphatically assert that persecution for the people of God is inevitable. There is no possibility ever of escaping persecution. Not only that, but the scriptures even go a step further and say, not only is persecution inevitable, but it's necessary. It's obligatory. It is so essential to the life of the Christian that without it, he can't go to heaven. You remember the words of Paul. He was in the central part of Asia Minor. And he established the churches of Antioch and Pisidia and Iconium and Derba and Lystra. And on the way back, he retraced his steps. And the scriptures tell us he did two things. Number one, he ordained elders in every church. And number two, he told the people, as if this was the thing they had to remember above all else, that it is only through much tribulation, and this is the word that is used, only through much tribulation that we are able to enter the kingdom. That's the only way. There isn't any way but this. 
And so in Matthew 5, Jesus makes a point of it, of reminding the citizens of the kingdom of heaven that one of their characteristics is this. They are persecuted. They are the poor in spirit. They are strange citizens, you know. This, these are the identities of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever heard of a kingdom with such citizens? Poor, crying all the time, meek, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and then persecuted. You want to identify the people of God, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Here they are. This is the kind they are. The kingdom of God is made up of this kind of people. Persecuted. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why? Well, the, we're going to the kingdom. And there isn't any other way to go but through persecution. The third point I want to make, and Jesus makes that point right here in verse 10, persecution is always for righteousness' sake. Now, that means two things, and I'd like to have you very clear on that. Why are they persecuted for righteousness' sake? Well, number one, God has imputed to them the righteousness of Christ. They don't have any righteousness of their own. The righteousness which is their possession is the righteousness that is imputed for Christ's sake. And therefore they suffer for Christ's sake. The wicked, when they see the people of God, See that they are righteous for Christ's sake. And because they are righteous for Christ's sake, and they hate Christ, they persecute God's people. But in the second place, that same expression for righteousness' sake means that they represent the cause of Christ in the world, the cause of Christ's righteousness. They say for all to hear, they say boldly and courageously, this world is under the dominion of sin. It is a world of unrighteousness. Everything in this world is unrighteous. We stand for the cause of the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. We are righteous not because we have attained righteousness by something which we have succeeded in accomplishing, which you can also succeed in accomplishing. Christ has imputed his righteousness to us. And that righteousness is a characteristic of his kingdom. We stand for his kingdom. And his kingdom is heavenly. It is a kingdom of complete freedom from sin. It is a kingdom where all is to the glory of God. It's a kingdom where we're going. And that kingdom we represent. And the world bent on establishing the kingdom of 
Satan and Antichrist will have none of it. That's the idea of suffering for righteousness' sake. The next point is that, that I want to make about persecution is this, that if you look at persecution from the viewpoint of the people of God, it's probably from a purely physical point of view the worst suffering imaginable. All you have to do is read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a classic, it's a recitation of the martyrs of the New Testament church, and it describes in frightening detail the sufferings to which the people of God have been subjected, and persecution which will someday be our lot as well, and martyrdom included with it. Nevertheless, Jesus says that isn't the only way persecution comes. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's persecution too. Cruel, heartless, unending and something to which the child of God is subjected all the time. Sometimes openly and publicly slandered. Somebody told me once, I don't even remember who told me this, but somebody told me once that I should type my name in a Google search box and uh, let Google come up with what it had on the uh, World Wide Web which I foolishly did. I don't think I'll ever do it again. And there it all was, 27 pages, single-spaced, all about me, more about me than I knew about myself. Everything I had ever written was there, and I wondered, I didn't read much of it because it wasn't very good. I wondered whether everything I had ever said was there. I know that Many sermons I had preached, which had found their way on tapes and CDs and probably uh, on the internet somehow were there. But the criticisms, not all of it, I suppose, the criticisms, you wouldn't believe it. Vile, heartless, cruel in an unbelievable way. Insults of the most intolerable sort. After scanning three or four pages, I said to myself, I don't need this stuff. So I shut it off. It was almost as bad as pornography. I guess not quite, but I was not interested in that sort of a thing. And I suppose that anyone who has spoken in public or published in public or written an article for Beacon Lights or for the Sunday School papers could find on the World Wide Web the same thing as I found. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you 
and speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Don't forget that the persecution which Jesus endured and the persecution which the people of God endure is not at its worst when those who are outside of the boundaries of the church persecute us. But when that same reviling and that same reproach comes from within the church, from your fellow saints, then the persecution is severe. You must not be surprised. That's what happened to the Lord, isn't it? Who crucified Christ? Well, Pilate had a hand in it at the instigation of the Jews, and Herod had something to say about it. But it was the church, the church, the consistory, if you will, the leaders of the people, those in whose hands was the welfare of the church, who nailed the Lord to the cross. And God did that deliberately to remind us that this is the way it is throughout all history. What was David's greatest sorrow? That Moab had come to fight against him and that Ammon was a threat to the kingdom? Oh no, don't you ever believe it. But Absalom, his own son, his own flesh and blood. And Ahithophel, we took sweet counsel together. We walked arm in arm to the house of God. He has lifted up his heel against me. Persecution, reproach, reviling. And you better get used to it because it's only going to increase. The Protestant Reformed churches, as long as they stand firmly for the truth to which they are committed, are going to be reviled. It always strikes me as being, what shall I say, as being almost impossible to fathom that those who belong to the church and profess to believe, for example, the well-meant offer of the gospel, and who know our rejection of that insidious and blasphemous heresy, never try to argue the point. They'll never go to the scriptures. They'll quote a few texts here and there that they pull out of the air and divorce those texts completely from their context and say, here you have it. But when we answer those silly sometimes and shallow interpretations of various texts, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, they never take the time to respond. And when we come with texts from Scripture that prove the impossibility of God longing for the salvation of all men, they won't even give the courtesy of an answer. They simply ignore it all, shove it aside. You people can't preach the gospel to the heathen. You people are hyper-Calvinists. You people are narrow and hidebound. You people are intolerant, on, uh, intolerant of any little devi deviation from your own pet position, and so on and so forth. 
Why don't they be man enough? Why don't they have the courage to say, we have examined your arguments. We have looked at the scripture passages which you quote. But this is why you're wrong in your interpretation of these scriptures. They never do that. Reproach. That's the easiest thing to do. And that's the best way to win the multitudes, too. Give them a bad name, then you don't have to answer arguments. Call them hyper-Calvinists, then you don't have to bother about examining their theological position. And I tell you, it's real. When my wife and I were in Wales, northern Wales especially, in I think it was 1999, one of the Banner of Truth men, man high in the upper councils of the Banner of Truth, went about in Wales and warned congregations, beware of the Protestant Reformed churches and their efforts to spread propaganda in our country. They are a sect. That's his word, not mine. A sect. Why didn't he answer the arguments? It's easy just to say they're a sect, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know how many people who have first become acquainted with Protestant Reformed doctrine from Arminian backgrounds and the like have said to me over the course of the years, when we first came into contact with Protestant Reformed views, we thought to ourselves, is this another sect? Maybe we ought to have nothing to do with it. One, one man told me that yet within the last two or three days. His parents said to him, don't go there. That's a sect. A sect? 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 It's a group of people that deny the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a sect. A sect is a group that has another Bible beside the Holy Scriptures. Can they prove that that's true of us? Of course they can't. But it's so easy to say. They're a sect. Watch out. Be careful. They'll mesmerize you. They'll enchant you. They'll get you in their clutches. And once they have their tentacles about you, you won't be able to escape. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's persecution too. And we all know what that is, do we not? The next point about persecution is this, that while from our point of view it is because we stand for the cause of Christ and righteousness, from Satan's point of view, who inspires the devil, his other demons, and the world to persecute us, knows that the only way he can be successful in his war against God and the only way he can make this earthly creation, his realm, his kingdom, is by destroying those who represent the cause of Christ. Read Revelation 12. 
when he was cast out of heaven, when Christ ascended up on high, the devil turned his fury upon the woman, knowing that his time was short. From God's point of view, however, persecution is an absolute necessity. Understand that. You cannot go to heaven without being persecuted. They have hated me, Jesus says, on the night of his passion. They will hate you. That's the way it is in the world. God wants it that way. And he wants it that way because persecution is essential to our salvation. It is. And that's why, once again, the greatest of all sufferings is the means God uses to bring us to glory. God uses persecution to save us. I must say more about that, but not now. Persecution is the most terrible sin which the wicked are capable of committing. God is furious with homosexuality and its prevalence in our society and its open approval. And certainly if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for homosexuality, he will destroy America. It's such a foul sin that God can barely, if I may put it that way, I speak as a man, can barely restrain his fury. Blasphemy against his name and against his holiness, which is nothing less than throwing mud on God and disfiguring him, is grievous. And God's own holiness will not permit that to happen. But there's one sin which is greater than them all, and that's the persecution of his church. The church is his bride. He loves his church. If I owned a business and I had a hundred employees, if there was an employee among those 100 that was guilty of blasphemy, I would not allow him to work for me. And I would be furious at any one of my employees who became guilty of the sin of adultery or homosexuality. But if one of those employees harmed my wife, that would rouse me to unquenchable fury. That's my wife. That's what God says. And the wicked, in all their sin, in all their wickedness and rebellion and blasphemy, nevertheless, beat up the wife of God. A wife that's so precious in his sight that he gave his son to die for the redemption of his church. That he might take his church to glory. When they beat her and knock her about 
and try to kill her and even do and make her suffer every indignity. Do you think God in heaven, who spared not his own son, will not be roused to unquenchable fury by the persecutors of his church? They will be. He will be. And their judgment will be terrible. At the same time, God, whose ways are in the sea, always past finding out, uses that very persecution to save his church. Christ was persecuted. The cross is the ultimate expression of the hatred of the world. But for Christ, the way of the cross led home for us too. The way of the cross leads home. Persecution is our salvation. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And now our time is up. Any questions about persecution? You may ask them. We have a few moments. Yes, Gord. That's always the question, isn't it? And the question is, how are we persecuted today? And by we, Gord means we who are sitting here tonight, we who live in this country of relative freedom, how are we persecuted today? A couple of things about that. In the first place, persecution is great in the world at large. I read an article not that long ago in which it was estimated that on the average, 200,000 Christians are killed every year for the cause of the gospel. 200,000. So, although maybe we do not know that kind of persecution, it's there in our brothers and sisters. You must have read in the Standard Bear what recently happened to some missionaries in Turkey. Dreadful, dreadful. That's not at all unusual going on all the time in Russia, China, Africa, the Middle East. So you have to remember that first of all. In the second place, as I said, persecution is not necessarily physical, but it can be the persecution of reproach, of evil speaking, of unjust criticism, of mockery and derision. And we know plenty of that. And so from that point of view, we are persecuted. It doesn't hurt us so much right now because we have our churches, we have our fellow saints, we have our congregations. But 
that isn't going to last. Because one of the signs of the coming of Christ is apostasy. And pretty soon, there will be just you and the mockers, that's all. And then to endure mockery and reproach. When you can't enjoy the company of those who suffer with you, then it's much worse. The Lord speaks in Matthew 24. It's a powerful passage. He speaks of there will be lawlessness and the love of many will wax cold and many will depart from the faith. And then he makes this statement and he switches from many to the singular. But he that endureth to the end will be saved. Out of the many, there will be one who will have to stand alone. That's coming yet here, but it is already true in many places in the world. I think for myself that God has given us here in this country a certain measure of freedom from overt persecution because we have such an important work to do in the cause of the gospel and the maintenance of the truth. We do not know, and only I think when God opens the books in the great judgment day will we begin to realize what a comfort and encouragement and source of strength we have been throughout the whole world to those who know persecution. And God, as it were, says to us, I'm going to give you less persecution than much of the rest of the church because I have to use you to maintain my truth yet a little while in the world until the church is gathered. At the same time, and that's a source of no little grief to me personally and to anyone who thinks about it, while we enjoy this period of prosperity and relative peace, we squander the time and the, and the possessions and the, and the, the instruments of spreading the gospel that God has given to us and we become sated with pleasure ourselves. And you can be sure of one thing. If the world does not see us as standing courageously and boldly for the cause of the kingdom of heaven, it's not going to persecute us either. It's not going to do that. And it's very well possible that our relative freedom from persecution is in some measure because of our worldliness and carnality and pursuit of the good things of life and our relative indifference to that important calling that is ours. Now I say relative because I don't want to leave the impression with you as if I have given up on our churches, not by any means. When I read 
where our witness goes and what it means to people of God, then I'm amazed, I'm amazed. But nevertheless, let's not forget it. The world does not persecute those who deny Christ, whether that's in their words or in their deeds. But although God may have work for us to do, and we'd better do it too, we'd better face the fact that we're next in line and that persecution will still will be our lot too presently. I'm not one to mix politics and religion, but I'll tell you this much, if Hillary Clinton gets in office, we're gonna have homosexuals knocking on the door of Hope Church. And if she doesn't get into office and it doesn't happen in the next five years, it's going to happen. And that's only one form of it. Hate crimes. Already Christians are accused of hate crimes, you know. So that's my answer. Did you uh, want to add anything to that? All right. Anyone else? Yes. Craig? Craig's question is, what role did, the perse did persecution make in other centuries in the formation of our creeds? Much, much. One of the reasons why the church today is in no shape to write confessions, and I include in that the Protestant Reformed churches, is this. We don't know what persecution is. And the, the, the confessions, the Reformed confessions arose out of persecution. They did. They were confessions against those who tormented and sought to destroy the church. It's true of the canons in the Arminian controversy. That's true of the Belgic confession, and Guido de Bra himself was hanged for his faith. But that's also true of the Heidelberg Catechism. Frederick the Pious, who is responsible for writing the catechism as its main supporter, suffered unbelievably, not only at the hands of the Roman Catholics, but at the hands of the Lutherans besides. And the Heidelberg Catechism expresses that as well. But that's a broader subject, as you say, than we can treat tonight. There was somebody else here, Rod. Rod's remark is that if we do not protest against the evils of our times, we will not be persecuted, and that's absolutely true. Henry? That's right, privilege. Philippians 1, you quote, it's correct. It's a privilege to suffer. The disciples, who after they were beaten by the Sanhedrin, went home rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. They rejoiced. God considered them worthy of that. What a powerful statement. And I read recently, I haven't seen the actual documents myself, but I read recently that the church in China, part of the church in China, which is enduring severe persecution, 
received a letter from some ecclesiastical body here in the West assuring the persecuted saints in China that the church here was praying for them and remembering them in their suffering. And they suffer, you know. They may only have one child, and women who get pregnant after one child are literally dragged to abortion clinics, and their babies, unborn, are torn from them, literally, in China. And especially that's true of the people of God who live in the consciousness of the calling to bring forth a covenant seed. But the church in China responded in this way. And now I can't quote from memory, but it went something like this. That you pray for us is reason for gratitude, but you don't have to pray that much for us. Because... We are privileged to suffer for Christ's sake, but we are praying for you because your dangers in the West of materialism and being swallowed up by the pleasures of this present time are much more spiritually harmful to you than persecution is to us. They answered that way. Now that's quite a testimony, you know, and Oh, so true. We must pray for those who are persecuted. And we ought not ever to utter a prayer without remembering God's people who are persecuted. But they're all right. They're all right. God is taking care of them. They are stronger than we are in many, many instances. And that they pray for us while it makes me feel about this big, nevertheless, is, I must admit, a prayer which I need. Absolutely. Affliction has been for our profit, of course. The affliction of suffering for Christ's sake, too. Affliction of persecution. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.